Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church Sermon Archive. We are glad that you have decided to listen. We hope each and every sermon will exalt God, strengthen God's people, and lead the lost to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at our website at www.trinityweatherford.net under the Contact Us tab. And now, here is Pastor Skyler Spradlin opening God's Word. Please flip your Bibles over to the right a few pages to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. If you're not sure where Philippians is located, uh, feel free to ask somebody next to you or close to you. It's in the New Testament of your Bible towards the back. It's a small letter. Also feel free to look at the table of contents at the front of your Bible. You can find the exact page number there. We'll be in Philippians chapter 3 this morning. Verse 12 through verse 16. A few weeks ago, we already have considered verses 12 and the first half of verse 13, so we won't revisit them extensively. Instead, this morning, we'll spend most of our attention on the last half of verse 13 and verse 14 and finishing up through verse 16. Now, I ask myself this question every week, and I actually thought this week it would be a good way for me to begin. The question I ask is, why do God's people need this particular text? Why do they need this passage? In other words, why does God give it to us? Why did He have it recorded? Why does He want us to know it, to study it, to memorize it, to read it, be exposed to it, all of those sorts of things? What benefit is there for God's people from this particular set of verses. Well, as we will look this morning, I hope I will make clear in verses 13 and 14 primarily that this passage is one about perseverance. The, at least that's the subject we're looking at, perseverance. And why is that important for God's people to know? Well, it's because we live in a world that is dangerous. And danger is ever present in the sense that not physical harm jeopardizing us, but in the sense that we are constantly being tempted to pull away from Christ. To pull away from the faith. To give up on church, to give up on Christianity, to give up on the scriptures. To slouch back into our flesh. In fact, I think that threat is more constant, more dangerous, and often stronger than we know or realize. Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 13, He he shares a phrase, He shares a principle rather, that's found repeatedly through the Bible. He says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. There's this reality in the Christian faith that We must keep the faith to the very end. We must hold Christ unto death. We must, as the Puritan said, die well. You know, that was was much more of a concern 
for brothers and sisters in centuries past than it seems to be for us today. And I'm thinking primarily in times of the Reformation, times of the, the Puritans. They were deeply concerned with dying well. And part of that is because often death brought with it lots of pain and agony. They didn't share the modern medicine that we have today. Pain wasn't numbed. Death was often prolonged. And they were concerned about in the moment of agonizing death, that people would keep the faith. They wouldn't grow bitter with God. They wouldn't give up. They wouldn't cast off the gospel. They would stay faithful unto death. They would hold fast to Christ. They would die well. We may perhaps spend less attention on dying well, but the principle is no less important for us. We also must keep the faith unto death. Persevere to the end. Face down death with the assurance of Christ. Enter into eternity, as Paul says in the end of his life, having kept the faith and fought the fight and ran the race. That's nice to think about and it's nice to confess with our minds and our mouths, but hard to accomplish. Many people abandon the faith at some point in their life. Many of us know people who have abandoned the faith. Many of us have relatives who have abandoned the faith. Some of you have children and grandchildren who have abandoned the faith. You know this all too well and too personally. Some of us have siblings. Some of us have friends that we grew up with. In a couple of weeks ago, I introduced you to a new term that's trending in society. It's the term exvangelical. It's the reference of somebody who's leaving Christianity, leaving the church. Instead of being evangelical, they are now exvangelical. They have rejected what they were raised to believe. They have rejected what they were brought up under. Church, that, that's a stark reminder that what once was seen as personal failure to give up on God is today celebrated. It's celebrated as an awakening. It's celebrated as uh, freedom from indoctrination. It's celebrated as liberation from delusion. Today, people are not only celebrated as exvangelicals, not only are their stories celebrated as exvangelicals, they even promote on how to become an exvangelical. On how to leave the church. On how to escape the grip of Christianity. And many, many people are buying into it. Abandoning the faith is nothing new. Paul will talk about it later in chapter 3. Towards the end of the chapter. But we are a people who desire everyone to keep the faith. We recognize that many people are abandoning Christ and we do so with remorse and we do so with sadness. What are we to do 
How are we to engage a world that embraces abandoning Christianity? How do we in, engage with the celebrations over abandoning Christianity? How are we to frame those things in our mind? How are we to address them with the people around us? Well, as I said a few weeks ago, I think it be, begins with remembering and actually teaching and evangelizing in a way that reminds people Christianity is not about a moment. It's about a lifetime. There is a moment that's important. Make no doubt of that. A moment of conversion. But your Christian faith and your walk with Christ is less about one single moment and more about a lifetime commitment to be with Jesus. That's where we picked up a few weeks ago in chapter 3, verse 12. Paul writes, and he's writing in these verses to remind the Philippian Christians to keep pressing on in the faith. Don't, don't give up. And we highlighted a few things that he said are necessary to keep persevering. And, and remember, chapter 3 is this brief biographical sketch of Paul's life. And so he writes in verses 12 through 13, or 12 through 15, um, 14, I'm sorry, 12 through 14, in a personal fashion. But by verses 15 and 16, he's making it clear that he only shares his personal stories that they might learn from it. And so first, he says, if we're going to press on in the faith, if you remember, we must have a continuing confession. As Paul confesses in verse 12, that's not a confession as in the sense of a formal document or a statement of faith. That's a, com a confession in the sense of an admission. Admitting, as Paul does in verse 12, that we're not yet perfect. We have not yet arrived. We're not yet complete. Paul actually says in verse 12, he hasn't already obtained this. And that this is closeness with Christ. Nearness with Christ in terms of a daily personal relationship, a daily personal walk. And he says, I'm not where I want to be. Christians ought never think that they are where they should be. They should never be satisfied. They should never think that they have arrived to perfection on this side of heaven. Part of being a Christian is a constant Humble confession that we are still wrestling against sin, still in need of a Savior, still dependent upon God, still in need of forgiveness. In fact, the gospel necessitates such a continued thinking. So Paul's advice to these Philippian Christians as it pertains to persevering to the end of life, keeping the faith, staying faithful to Christ, is to remember and continue confessing, keep confessing that you're not where you are supposed to be, that you still are in need of God. Such a humble attitude, church, is the prime fertile soil that God often grows maturity in. Secondly, he says in verse 12, you must continue to hold your confidence. 
He says, I press on to make it my own. This unique, personal, full, vibrant relationship with Christ. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Christ has captured me. He has taken hold of me. He has purchased me. He has ransomed me. I have been bought by Him. I now belong to Him. That is the motivation for Christians to keep on going to the end. Why? Because it's a reminder that all of our effort, all of our work, and even our painful sanctification, it's not in vain. It's guaranteed. If Christ has laid hold of us, then all of our effort will yield the result we desire. It's not done in vain. Now, before I go further, let me clarify. I am not saying that one can earn their way into heaven by simply holding fast to Christ, working out good works, earning their way into the favor of God. The whole motivation here for Paul at the end of verse 12 is that Christ has first laid hold of him. And that first laying hold of him is what enables, fuels, and motivates him to then work for Christ as we shall see in the rest of these verses. So now we come down to verse 13. The last half of verse 13. What's the final step? Final necessary uh, factor to help us arrive to the end of life faithful to Christ. It's that we continue on a certain course. He says, let's just pick up in verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So first this morning, or the last step, I guess, here in verse 13, is that we continue on a certain course. And by course, I mean path. That we keep a certain path. That we stay on a certain path. That we walk the certain path in a certain sort of way. We keep and maintain a certain course of action. Now just... For point of clarification, I'm not saying that there are multiple courses that one can take to arrive to heaven. I am merely saying that there is one course in a certain way in which we ought to walk it. That's the narrow way that Christ talks about. How are we supposed to walk that narrow way from the moment of conversion until the moment of death? And notice I'm not asking to get to the moment of conversion. I'm saying from the moment of conversion to the moment of death, how are you to walk the Christian path, walk the Christian way in a way that's productive, God-glorifying, safe, beneficial? How are you to navigate yourself on this journey? Is there any help whatsoever? In traversing this treacherous path. This is what Paul talks about in verse 13. With first saying. 
that he forget forgets what lies behind. So the first step in continuing the course and staying on the path to arrive to death faithful in Christ is to forget what lies behind. Now oftentimes Christians take take this verse and we reference it and we use it to kind of help us overcome our guilt and regret for recent sins. Typically sin has crept up in life. Maybe it's a continued constant sin that keeps plaguing us. And we're tempted to feel guilt and shame and regret. And then we think in our minds this verse and we say, I just need to forget what lies behind and keep pressing on. It's this sort of motivational verse that we use to remind us, keep serving Christ, keep keep the faith, forget the sins that you've committed, move on, in other words. After all, every sin is virtually in the past, right? And so I forget what's behind and I keep going. There may be an element of that in this statement, but I don't think that's the primary purpose of this statement. There may be some comfort to remind ourselves that we are to keep pressing on even if we've committed some sinful failure. But I think Paul's emphasis here is much more powerful, much more profound. When he writes that he forgets what lies behind, he's referring to his entire life before Christ. We know this because that's been the the point of the whole passage thus far. Back up to verse 5 and verse 6, he's been laying out this long list of achievements and uh, laying out his reputation, his status, his, even his heritage as an Israelite. And then verse 7, he comes down to say, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He intensifies as he goes further into verse 8 and verse 9. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says it a third time, for His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Paul has renounced everything to have Jesus. He's given up his birthright. He's given up his Israelite heritage. He's given up his achievements. He's given up his renown. He's given up his status and his reputation. He's given up his power and influence and potential earned income and promotions. This man who was, well, as he describes himself, a Hebrew of Hebrews, embraced a life of hardship, persecution, rejection, wandering, traveling around from city to city, planting churches. Constantly under the threat of death. All for Christ. When Paul writes that he's forgetting what lies behind, he's saying, I'm forgetting my old self. Not just these sins that I've committed since I've been saved. I'm forgetting everything of the world and everything of myself, everything that I was promised, everything that tempted me before Christ. That person is dead. 
And that person is gone. Church, that is the fundamental calling of the gospel. To die to yourself and to live in Christ. To die in yourself is a statement of totality. Not just part of you die. Not just give up a section of your life. But to die entirely to self. That is the calling of the gospel. I've shared with you before. What do you think is so offensive about the gospel to an unbeliever? Do you really think it's the message of God's love that offends the world? They're all about self-love. And any love that gets added to that is only a bonus. It's not the love of God that offends the world. It's the gospel proclamation that says you're a sinner who's offended God and must pay the penalty for that sin. And that if you're going to be right with God, you have to give up yourself and serve Him and submit to Him. That's what's offensive about the gospel. There's this creator who's real and he exists and he made everything that you see and don't see and hear and don't hear and smell and don't smell and taste and don't taste and know and don't know. He made everything. And then he said, this is how things ought to work. And this is how you should be. And he has that right as creator. But then we do what we've called sin, what the Bible calls sin. We disobeyed the creator. We went after things in our own way and we did things our, uh, according to our own pleasure and we broke his law and his rules. And breaking those rules is cosmic treason. Punishable by an eternity in hell. That's not an unjust action. That's not an unrighteous action. That's a very just action. A very righteous act of God. In other words, the crime fits the punishment and the punishment fits the crime. But God loved humanity and sent His Son to take on human flesh, to be born and found in the likeness of human beings. He lived on this earth perfectly in our place. He died on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins so that we could be made right with God. And then three days later, He resurrects from the grave Comes back to life, conquering death and declaring that anybody who trusts in him alone for salvation will be saved. What does it mean to trust in him? It means to give up your way of life, your sinful way of life. It means to give up trusting in yourself. 
and put all your eggs in his basket. Church, that's what's offensive. Not so much that Jesus died on the cross, but the exclusivity of Jesus dying on the cross. That only Jesus dying on the cross is what saves. And He is the only path to be right with God. And you must give Him your whole self. Well, That's what the gospel is. And Paul has fully embraced that gospel. And he says, I have died to self. And I forget what lies behind. I give it up. I renounce it. I relinquish it. I no longer want to go back to being that person. I no longer want to go back to being in that world. Let's just be honest. That is often really hard because it requires great sacrifice. I think I've been blessed by God to be raised in the family I was raised in. Christian family. My sacrifices are smaller than most. We've had people in this church Baptized in this church. Knowing that professing their faith in Christ meant being ostracized from their family. I'm sure many of you are like me. To follow Christ means I've had to give up certain friendships. Certain hobbies. Certain things that I enjoyed. Because they were wrong. Or ungodly. Or harmful. Paul says it's worth it. To no longer be who we were without Christ. But to embrace who we are going to be in Christ. To keep putting off this flesh. An act church that just doesn't happen in a moment. It doesn't happen in an instant. Now in one sense it does. And I know some of you will be quick to point that out to me. And you should be. But, but that's not what I'm talking about. In one sense... The, the old self is done away with immediately. We might call that a declarative or a legal sense. When God declares us righteous in Christ, our old self has been crucified. But in a sanctified sense, your old sinful flesh doesn't go away in an instant. I'm plagued with my rotten flesh until I embrace death. That means I must regularly be Fighting against my sinful impulses. I must regularly be forgetting what lies behind. Notice this language. It's not that Paul's simply not remembering his past. When he says forgetting, he doesn't mean that I'm just going to shuffle it away in the back part of my brain and not think about it. I'm just going to choose to forget it and not remember it. He means I'm actively, consciously, with great dedication and diligence, choosing to put it away. It's not enough just to not remember the bad things in life. And by God's grace, I have been able to forget some of them. And some of them I won't forget even to eternity, I don't think. It's rather that he's making this conscious, regular choice To keep putting the old self back where it belongs. Behind. As the past. Not as the dictator of the future. 
or the present. He is continually counting everything as loss. You know, sanctification, that process of being made like Christ, that process of being made holy, it isn't some mystical work that takes place outside of you. It's a partnership between you and the Holy Spirit as He works in your heart and as you also put forth the disciplined effort to grow in godliness. You and I as Christians, we're to keep rejecting the world. We're to keep rejecting the worldly impulses of our flesh. We're to keep rejecting our sinful nature. And we are to keep embracing Christ and righteousness and godliness as a day-by-day-by-day devotion. Secondly, he says in verse 13, he's straining forward to what lies ahead. Not, Not only is he forgetting what lies behind, he's straining forward to what lies ahead. At this point, I would say and remind you that the Christian faith isn't an actionless faith. There's a fine and important line for us to understand there. Because I'm not saying that in any way, again, do we earn our standing before God. Romans chapter 3, verse 20 and verse 28 both essentially say the same thing, that by works of the law, no human being will be justified before God. A few verses later, in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, we have peace with God because we've been justified through faith. So we don't do good works We don't make Christianity a faith of action to earn our salvation or favor with God. That is actually anti-Christianity. That's to reduce the grace of God and the sacrifice of Christ as insufficient. Rather, we work because we're Christian, not to become Christian. Works are a major part of our faith. I think many well-meaning people have swung to the other extreme as an overreaction against earning your salvation with good works so that they now ignore working altogether. But good works are a fundamental part of our Christian faith. In James chapter 1, verse 22, he says, Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. In other words, to just hear the Bible and not to obey the Bible, not to do the works of the Bible, is to deceive yourself. In other words, to be a Christian is to be a doer of the Bible. A doer of the Word of God. Chapter 2, verse 17 of the book of James. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Not to say works bolster our faith, but that they flow from our faith. Real faith produces action. It produces good works. We work from faith, not for faith. All of that comes to to bear on this statement Paul makes in verse 13 that we strain forward to what lies ahead. It means that we, we take this bold and radical commitment to keep pushing on towards Christ. We're not passive participants 
in our sanctification. We're not passive participants in our Christian faith. We keep walking. We keep after it. We keep striving. It means to put forth effort. Even strenuous effort. Hard work. You might put in your mind the image of grinding your teeth together. Slogging through the mud. One step after another. To work at dying to self. You know, it is just not enough to desire for the old self to die. And it's not enough just to think about the old self dying. Church, we have to strain forward to godliness. We have to slog on to holiness. We have to fight hard for righteousness. It's not natural to our flesh. We do this not only because it's not natural, but because the old self just won't go away. I've shared with you before Martin Luther's quote that I enjoy. He said, I drowned the old self, but then found out the rascal could swim. It keeps rearing its ugly head in our lives. And if we allowed it, it would rule every moment of our lives. That old flesh shows up and reveals itself in things like selfishness, pride, unjust anger and bitterness, gossip and self-centeredness, impurity and outbursts of fury and slander and all sorts of neglect. Neglect of Scripture, neglect of prayer, neglect of evangelism, neglect of worship. It's this internal dog that just doesn't cower easily. A weed that keeps mixing itself with the flowers in our hearts that it's not easily plucked. A poison that lingers in the blood. It does not go away in an instant. No matter how much we try to forget. No matter how much we think about it dying. No matter how much we desire to be godly. Church, we must be an active people who follow God. We must be straining forward. Putting forth the effort. Moving with all diligence towards holiness, Christ-likeness, newness, and all that that implies. New worldview, new perspective, Pleasures and desires. New logic. So, Paul says, continue on this course. And to do that, you need to forget what lies behind. You need to strain forward, work hard, press on to what lies ahead. Keep growing in grace. Put away the things that tempt you to your old flesh. Embrace the things that push you to God. Thirdly, very quickly here. Verse 14. Keep moving toward the goal. 
This is the second time he said the phrase press on. He said it already in, the, in uh, verse 12. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Verse 14, I press on. It's this um, kind of friction phrase. Even if I have to, to grind through it, I press on toward this goal. Paul's not aimlessly straining forward to what lies ahead. His eyes are set in a very fixed direction. To the Colossians in chapter 3, he would tell them to set their minds on the things above. It's the same sort of principle and thinking and motivation here. His eyes are fixed on eternity. His eyes are fixed heavenward. It's the promise of eternity with Christ that fuels every ounce of effort that he puts forward in getting rid of the old self and persevering through the end in the new self. Now notice the language he uses is somewhat unique. He says, I press on toward the goal. But the goal isn't his desire. The prize is. There's a distinction here between the goal and the prize. So what is the goal if not the prize? This is what I think Paul references when he says I press on towards the goal. I think he means I press on toward the goal of being found faithful at the end of life. Of sticking with Christ. Of keeping the faith. Of not abandoning the Lord. As I quoted earlier in 2 Timothy, he celebrates that grace. 2 Timothy chapter 4, the very end of his last letter in, in the New Testament, he says to Timothy, I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but to, to all who have loved His appearing. The difference between the goal and the prize is that Paul's goal is to arrive to death having kept the faith and finished the race and fought the fight. In other words, I didn't bring reproach upon Christ. I didn't renounce salvation or the Gospel. I didn't give up. And you better believe it. There were many times to give up. Many temptations to toss in the towel. Many reasons to say, I don't want to do this anymore. His comfort had been stripped away. Resources stripped away. Likeability stripped away. But the goal is to arrive to the end of life, whether that be death or the second coming of Christ, and to be found faithful. Because when you reach that goal, then you get the prize. I press on towards this goal for the prize because I desire and want the prize. What is the prize? He says in verse 14, it's the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's a beautiful way to say this. Paul's prize his desire, the thing that makes it all worth it, 
is an eternity with Jesus. What else motivates a man or a woman to renounce everything? What else renounce a per- uh, causes a person to forget everything that lies behind? To forget their entire previous self. What else causes a person to embrace a life of hardship and a life of disciplined work, spiritually speaking? It's an eternity with Christ. This work doesn't gain that eternity with Christ. This straining forward prevents us from abandoning Christ. So that when we come to the end, we've been found with Him still. An eternity with Jesus is all that a Christian needs to fuel them for a lifetime commitment. He says in verse 15 and 16 that this sort of thinking with this goal and this desire for the prize is for the mature. And that if you don't necessarily get it yet, he thinks God will reveal it to you. And he ends with this great verse of encouragement. No matter where you're at on the path, Maybe today your resolve has been bolstered to commit to Christ. Maybe today you're beat down by such a text saying, I'm just tired. I'm tired of the fight. I'm tired of the war. Maybe you're sitting today full of doubt and unsure. Verse 16 has this summarizing verse to these Philippian Christians. No matter where you're at on the journey, simply hold true what we've attained. What is that? It's the gospel. Salvation. You struggling with forgetting what lies behind? Just keep holding on to what is true. You struggling with straining forward? Keep holding on to what is true. Are you struggling being motivated by an eternity with Christ alone? Keep holding on to what is true. And if you hold on to what is true, keep holding on to salvation. Keep holding on to the gospel. Keep holding on to the leading of God. You'll grow into maturity and think this way, as Paul says in verse 15. You'll realize the benefit of forgetting what lies behind. You'll realize that straining forward, even if you have to work for every step in Christian maturity, is worth it you'll realize that there is no higher prize than the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There's two ways to respond to this text this morning. One way is for the Christian, and that is for the Christian to continue in commitment to Christ. Maybe praying and asking for God to help you Keep the faith. That's never a bad prayer. Maybe it's asking God to strengthen you in your fight to keep the faith. 
The other response is for the unbeliever this morning. To consider the Gospel. To consider whether salvation, forgiveness of sins, and rightness with God, and an eternity with Christ is actually worth the cost of giving up everything. Many believers here this morning, including Paul, would say yes. It is worth it. If you're an unbeliever and you realize it is worth giving up everything, making sacrifices to be right with God, today you can be saved. Today you can put your faith in Christ. Find forgiveness. And possess the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. Whatever the response is, I trust if you seek God, He will make it clearly known to you. Father, we want to be found faithful at the end. And there are many dangers on this path that would trip us up. This journey is a treacherous one. Temptation and sin lies at every corner. Hostility and opposition from the world is constant. Even today, it's popular to reject you. But we want to keep the faith. We want to call others to keep the faith. And we want to evangelize in a way that tells people this is a Lifetime commitment. So remind us, Lord, to keep our confession, keep our confidence, and keep our course. Forget our former lives. Strain forward to spiritual growth. Press on for an eternity with you. Regardless, Lord, help us to hold what we know to be true. Your love in Christ. Would you apply such text as this into our hearts? For your glory and our good we pray, Jesus. Amen.